0: This is The Cable. How much retail ownership is in stock?
1: Tech story is front and center. What
0: will this wind up doing to the cost curve? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action.
2: A significant sell-off in European assets.
0: But so it feels like a lot of these stocks have already priced that in.
2: This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The Cable with Guy
3: Johnson
0: and Alex Steele. Behavioral challenges from the pandemic could linger for years
3: on Bloomberg Radio.
0: Good evening. You are listening to The Cable, Bloomberg DAB, digital radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Eddie Van is over in the UK. He's in for Guy Johnson. Man, this was a really crazy day. So, let's just get you caught up on the market. So, you're looking at a pretty nice rally uh, in European equities. The European stocks up 1%. The FTSE up 5 tenths of 1%. The CAC up 1.2%. Volume, though, a little bit light. Um, Overall, a touch of a sell-off in the bond market, in some ways led by the US. You have uh, Italian BTP yields up by about 11 basis points. A bit different in the UK. Uh, We did see... um, U.K. inflation slowing more than expected, so a touch of buying uh, across the curve for the U.K. And a couple of individual stories, just a headline crossing right now. The Credit Suisse will be exiting its distressed debt trading uh, with an asset sale, and that portfolio could be valued at about $250 million. So that's one headline. Barclays had a terrible quarter. Deutsche Bank cutting bonus staff uh, because of WhatsApp messaging. There's a lot of news flow out there, Eddie.
3: Alex, there's a lot of news out there and it does feel like the stock market is in denial here because you see those yields ticking higher, ticking higher, ticking higher. It looks as if the Fed is going to have to hike and hike significantly in order to keep, to bring the inflation under control. And yet the stock market just says we don't and, care.
0: I know. And I didn't even talk about what was happening in the U.S. in terms of the super hot retail number, retail sales number that we saw for January, despite me sticking to my budget. Anyway, lot to get through over the next hour. Let's get you some other stories here with Charlie Pellet. Hi,
4: uh, thank you very much. We do begin with markets, Alex. FTSE 100 climbing above 8000 for the first time, adding to gains for the UK's large-cap stock index after it outperformed global peers over the past year, the index ending the day at 79.97, a gain today of 0.5%, as you mentioned, up 7.3% year-to-date. Britain has turned the corner on the worst bout of inflation since 1981, raising the prospect that the Bank of England may soon complete its unprecedented interest rate hiking cycle. Investors are now betting the central bank's key rate peaks at 4.5% this summer. That suggests one or two more increases from the current 4%. Scottish First Minister Nicola Sturgeon has resigned after more than eight years as head of the country's government and independence movement in a surprise move that will reverberate across UK politics. Sturgeon has headed the semi-autonomous administration in Edinburgh since 2014. The decision to step down comes after an unusually turbulent time for Sturgeon. It leaves her Scottish National Party and the independence campaign looking for a new figurehead without a clear robe map and after a recent dip in the polls. That is the latest from the news desk. Alex Steele back to you now here in New York. All
0: right, Charlie, thank you so very much. That's right, we didn't even talk about Nicholas Sturgeon. We'll get to that in a moment wow. as well. I know, right? Um, okay, let's get to Barclays. Let's piece it all out. Uh, Barclays stock closing down about 7.8% uh, over in London. We had a surprise drop in profit Revenue missed estimates across every single line, even trading, which we all kind of thought was going to be better because of the volatility in the markets. I want to get more here with Tom Metcalf uh, joining us to discuss. Hey, Tom, what was the biggest surprise for you?
2: Yeah, I mean, pretty bad all around right i think the biggest surprise was just how sort of across the board these misses were you know i think taken individually there wasn't like sort of one gigantic miss. but i think the market looking and going wow look, the investment bank didn't deliver the retail bank didn't deliver even the card payments business didn't really deliver or at least meet expectations and so you've seen this absolutely enormous fall in a share price um and, and yeah just kind of a, a lot of negativities around embark barclays today
3: Look, but, but but shouldn't the banks be loving this environment mm-hmm. where we're suddenly seeing, uh, you know, interest rates going up, which, broadly speaking, should be good for them. Of course, they don't like inverted yield curves very much. But on the other hand, you know, the, all this talk of recession, we're not seeing any of that. So they, 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 they're they probably not going to lose as much um, on, on loan defaults. So what is it that's making it so difficult for Barclays?
2: Yeah, I think maybe it's sort of relative to other peers and kind of the expectations that, um, you know, perhaps through, through poor communication, they allowed to build up. So the complaints I've been hearing from analysts, a couple of things. One, that net interest uh, income margin was perhaps a bit more slender than people hoped for, given, as you say, the kind of prevailing conditions. And two, there was a buyout that they announced, £500 million. And that really kind of underwhelmed the market, which has seen other European banks go out and, you know, in these sort of great times, the banks, as you pointed out, kind of Really over promised Mm -hmm. in terms of what, or not over promised, promised much bigger payouts. And I think people were hoping for a lot more than 500 million uh, pounds. So that's been uh, a bit of a disappointment. Um, Mm -hmm. And as you say, kind of not what I expected when I woke up this morning. I was expecting the the traders to do really well uh, and kind of almost rescue the bank, but uh, not today. So,
0: but to that point about the buybacks, like, does Barclays just know something that other banks don't? Like, why didn't they deliver the kind of buybacks that the other banks did? Or, or is there something more fundamentally fragile for Barclays?
2: i don't think fundamentally more fragile i mean our colleague um paul davies on our opinion had a, had a fascinating piece saying whoa the market's really overreacted to this because actually probably shareholders will come to thank uh, the barclays board and the barclays executives for maybe being a bit more cautious here because you know everyone's been telling us you know look these we don't need too much provisions we're not seeing too many signs of distress at least in our book but then of course you look at the wider macro picture particularly in the uk there's a lot of warning signs there mm. and i think you know Let's say they get proven right and it's a really tough economic environment, then they'll be very grateful they haven't done a big buyback. And, you know what, if they get proven wrong, then they can always uh, come in with a heavier buyback later.
3: Right. I mean, that UK exposure is very interesting. But as you say, I mean, this is a terrible set of earnings. Every single unit disappointed. Yeah. Are there any positives in this? What, what do you take away as a Barclays investor is saying, OK, this is the story that I, wanted, I, I want to be hearing?
2: No, and I think that is the point. Because The last few quarters, they've been able to lean into their sort of strategy of having this big investment bank, which is really delivering. But kind of when you look at 2022 in the round, I think the risks of that strategy um, are really apparent. So one of the reasons it's underperformed is because a couple of, scandals that Barclays had to go through this year. So one is these big fines they took for the WhatsApp messaging. Um, basically, the bankers have been doing, along with many other Wall Street firms. That was about a $200 million hit. Um, and perhaps even more embarrassingly, they had this quite extraordinary paperwork blunder that I'm sure you'll remember, Eddie, where effectively they failed to sort of keep track of how many securities there were. <laughs> which right. you know, remarkable. And, and what that means in reality is, you know, A, it's humiliating, and B, it's a £700 million or so hit to their bottom line. And and that's the big problem with investment banking, right? Mm -hmm. Very risky, hugely lumpy earnings. And when it works, it really does work. But understandably, shareholders kind of go, you know what, we'd rather have more reliable earnings and perhaps less of these kind of nasty surprises.
0: But then you get something like um, loans, and they say that the ratio of bad loans could actually double this year. Um, That's what Barclay was was saying. And I feel like That kind of sentence, you can always read what you want to read, right? Because you can say, oh, yay, they're making loans. Economy's good. Or, ooh, no, people are going to default. That's not going to be good. It's sort of like a read what you want.
2: Yeah, exactly. And that's the real tough thing uh, I think Barclays is in. It's kind of in some sort of uh, sentiment-driven trading as well, right? You know, the sort of, as I say, missed expectations. People are kind of maybe perhaps looking for reasons to be gloomy. Um, but yeah, fundamentally, nothing has changed since last quarter, when you know they had this you know, world-class investment bank and and uh, everyone was praising
3: it. Yeah, and they, it is a, it is a quite a mixed picture, right? I mean, they when they look forward, they say they're cautious about global global economic conditions, but they do see growth opportunities. So it's a, it's quite a nuanced picture when they look forward.
1: Yeah
2: exactly and uh, you know I so, say yeah a bit of gloom in there but certainly not all doom and gloom so you know, I, and I think that's the reality. Is I think probably the executives today are looking at each other, going, "Wow, didn't expect the, uh, you know, maybe didn't expect a, a jump in the share price, but really surprised by how heavily they've been hit." And and you know, I think you know the message they've been given on their calls and stuff is, you know, we're through 2022. We're hoping we won't hit, be hit by any of these scandals. Let's say we're hoping kind of, you know, provisions are going to be um, sort of under under control in 2023. And and you know, we think the fundamentals um, will will show, um, yeah. uh, you know, why we're going to do well.
0: Nope. Fair enough. All right. Hey, Tom, thanks a lot. Really appreciate uh, Tom Metcalf joining us. on am Barclays. All right, coming up, we're going to talk about the inflation number uh, that came out today. I mean, is it good news, kind of? Like You had inflation slowing, but you still got a 10 handle. That still places the BOE in a super tough position, but the bond market seemed to react to that as positive news and that maybe we won't have to see as many rate hikes. I don't know. We're going to break that down next. This is Bloomberg.
3: This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg
5: Radio.
0: Good evening. Listen to The Cable, Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Eddie Branderville in for Guy Johnson over in the UK. So good news, maybe. I don't know. We'll see. Consumer prices, apparently, in January rose just 10.1% from a year ago. That's the lowest level wow. since September. But Exactly. But you had a 10 handle. Wow. That still kind of stinks, right? The good news is, is a core inflation fell to 5.3% in the 12 months of January 2023. That's from 5.8. Is that a silver lining for you, Eddie?
3: I don't know. It's pretty hard to, 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 <laughs> to find know. good news in these numbers, right? I think in the UK, the, the bigger issue in the UK is that not only are we getting these spectacularly high, high readings, the idea of a cost crisis is very much at the forefront of people's minds. And that means people are demanding higher wages. Mm-hmm. And we're seeing that in strikes. And, you know, I don't think the that that um people are just going to start backing down and saying, oh, we'll just accept. Lower wages. I, I think but, this is becoming entrenched in the UK much more so than than other places. Which
0: is what makes the market reaction really interesting. So Tom Reese is Bloomberg mm. UK economy reporter. He joins us now. I'm looking at the bond market all across the curve in the UK. We're seeing some pretty strong buying. The front end uh, actually outperforming with yields down six basis points. That tells me the market's taking this as more of a dovish sign for the BOE. Do we buy this, Tom?
5: Um, I did buy it a little bit. I, th- I think this was an inflation report f- for the doves. I think um, if you look at the core number and if you look at the services inflation number, which is one part of the figures that the Bank of England is watching very carefully, um, this is where we would see some obvious signs that wage pressures are are still very strong. We saw service inflation go from 6.8% to 6%. So I, I think coupled with some, some early signs in the wage data uh, yesterday, I... I think this, this one is for the doves. Okay, fair enough. But
3: the, the Bank of England is still well behind the curve, right? The Bank of England still has a lot of work to do to bring this number down. Um, whether we're talking about core or whether we're talking about the uh, CPI year-on-year figure, these numbers are still extremely high and the Bank of England isn't there
5: yet. No, I I, I think you're right. I mean, if, if you look at where the UK, UK is at compared to the Eurozone and US where we've seen much bigger falls, it does look like there's a lot more work to be done, but nonetheless, to be honest, the debate in the UK is shifting now towards um, how soon is 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 soon enough for, for the Bank of England to stop. I mean, there's I saw some economists this morning talking about maybe the next meeting be the, be the last hike over here.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, okay. So does that justify the bond market action that we're seeing?
5: Um, I think a little bit. I've, I think they're just now starting to price in a little bit more of a risk that the bank don't go as far as they as they once thought. I mean, they, they're still largely pricing in another 50 basis points uh, in the UK. But I, I think they now have to be a bit more wary of the risk that they don't go that far because we're, we are seeing some of these wage pressures starting to come off a little bit.
3: Right, fine. But, you know, I, there's the, the UK is struggling with a little bit of a credibility gap at the moment and attracting external investors um, is is a problem for the UK. How much is that going to feed into the bank's decisions um, and and, you know, into the premium that, that, that you need to pay for for UK assets? This um, I- rather.
5: Yeah, I think I think it'll come a little bit into into that thinking. I mean, it's it's not just a BoE issue. That obviously, um, part of the right credibility issue of policy in the UK is also a, a government one as well, which is maybe a bit more unique to us. Um, the government and the pound, right? Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, so I, it, it'll it'll be in their thinking, but I I I think they'll they'll be just focused on whether those underlying inflationary pressures are beginning to ease. And I think there are signs that we're, we're starting to fall a little bit more in line with uh, with the U.S. and Eurozone in, in that respect.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, I should point out at least, and this feels like a good silver lining here, um, is that inflation in the services sector uh, did slow to 6%. We cannot say the same thing over here in the U.S., um, even if you back out housing. So, I mean, hey, that's something. We'll go with that. Tom, thanks a lot. Tom Reese, Bloomberg <laughs> UK economy reporter. And I pointed out, two-year yield over in the UK, down six basis points. Uh, three-year yield, eight down eight basis points. All right, coming up, we're going to get back to that political shakeup uh, over in Scotland. Uh, Nicola Sturgeon stepping down, was very surprised. It was a pretty um, intense press conference. We're going to break that down and what it means for UK politics next. This is Bloomberg. <laughs>
3: This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio.
6: Today I am announcing my intention to step down as First Minister and leader of my party. I have asked the National Secretary of the SNP to begin the process of electing a new party leader and I will remain in office until my successor is elected.
0: That was a surprise heard all over the U.K., the Scottish First Minister Nicola Sturgeon, uh, Sturgeon resigning after eight years as head of the country's government and independence movement in a surprise move that can reverberate throughout Scotland politics, U.K. politics. Yeah, and this also felt very similar to Jacinda Ardern uh, uh, resigning from as prime minister of New Zealand as well. Eddie, I mean, I'm just saying, like, why can't we keep women in politics? But that feels like a different discussion. <laughs>
3: Right. uh, Right. Absolutely. You know what I mean? But you took the words right out of my mouth. That is exactly what I was going to say. This is going to reverberate not only across Scotland, but it's going to reverberate across the UK. It changes the, the electoral landscape because I think this 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 will shift the balance in Westminster because it'll affect Labour's vote in the UK. And I definitely want to hear more about this story.
0: Let's do it. Uh, Rodney Jefferson, a Bloomberg senior editor, joins us now from Edinburgh to discuss um, just your thoughts, Rodney, on like l- listening to the 40 minute uh, resignation speech from Nicola Sturgeon. Like what were some of your big takeaways from here? Like why is she doing this now?
7: I think really, I mean, I agree with everything you were just saying there, that that, that it's, it, it is going to be a huge shift for UK politics. And I, I think that the reason she's 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 doing it now is is that she's sort of run out of a, a bit of road. I mean, if you think about it, she mm. was was she was adamant that there would be another independence referendum. Then the, the UK Supreme Court nixed that by saying that it wouldn't be uh, they weren't they didn't have the right Scotland didn't have the right to hold one to call one unilaterally. And then, of course, the UK government has been you know the the Tories have been um, equally adamant that. They would not grant the permission to hold one, so her plan b was to to have a to, to turn the next u k general election into a de facto referendum I just felt a little it felt always like another long shot and mm. you know considering that her party has only ever scored fifty percent of the popular vote in two thousand and fifteen, which was just in the wake of the previous independence referendum when the whole country was energized and and and, and you know, the movement sort of took off a lot more. Um, and I think, you know, it's very difficult to see where she was going to go from here. Now, mm. having said that, I would be lying if I said that I expected this. Um, it was a shock, <laughs> I think, to everybody. In fact, that's the word that's been, been bandied around all day, this surprise resignation, shock resignation. But right. we, whether she was going, whether uh, she was eventually going to go you know, after the next UK election, I think I would have put money on that,
3: Rodney. But you know what? To Alex's point about keeping women in politics, she was she was hugely popular. She was popular beyond the uh, the the you know just her pure fixation on independence, which is which is of course which she was known for in. Um, more than anything else um in scotland but but there were people outside of scotland that said look if i could vote for anybody i would vote for her particularly because of because you know because of how she conducted herself through brexit she was popular wasn't she Uh, absolutely she still is uh hugely popular i mean
7: this will be yeah this is just not like ah you know we all saw that coming i mean i'm talking as, as a country not just like you know, political journalists and commentators. I mean, this will reverberate from everywhere, right? It's like from primary schools all the way up, you know. It, you know, she's hugely popular, a big presence, like you said, in the UK, not just Scotland, which was, was again, as you mentioned, that was uh, sort of turbocharged during, the, you know, her opposition to Brexit and the fact that Scotland, every part of Scotland voted to stay in the European Union, and her idea was that was, you know, democratically... Sort of indefensible, the fact that Scotland would be taken out of the European Union. And then that morphed into being democratically indefensible in her idea, her, her view that uh, Scotland shouldn't be afforded another independence referendum. Um, but yeah, I mean, she is, she, there's been a few missteps recently. I mean, she didn't win many favors uh, with the gender recognition bill, mm-hmm. not necessarily the nature of the gender recognition bill. I'm not talking about that. But, you know, politically, it didn't, it, you know. It, it was a bit of a, a bit of a mess, uh, and then it was blocked by um, by the UK government, which was unprecedented that they would block uh, legislation passed by the Scottish Parliament. Um, so, I mean, I think it would be wrong to say that it was because of that. I think mm-hmm. it's been a bit of a slow burn, but I think it goes all back to the fact that he's a hugely popular female politician not just in Scotland, but also would follow us elsewhere in the UK. And she's sort of just come to the end of it, really.
0: Um, such a shame on that front. Um, what does it, I keep hearing that it's going to be good for the Labour Party. Can you walk me through the politics here?
7: Yes. First of all, I mean, the UK election has to be held by January 2025, right? So there's still a lot of politics to go. Uh, the Labour Party is currently polling at least 20%, uh, 20 percentage points ahead of the Conservatives, the, 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 the governing Conservatives, um, at the moment. And Scotland, remember, used to be very much a Labour heartland. In fact, out of the 59 seats that were, were uh, in the Westminster Parliament for Scotland, Labour used to hold 41. They lost 40 of them in 2015 to Sturgeon's SMP. Now, you would think... thinking here is the fact that yes you have this sort of very huge presence in UK politics that will be removed or taken a back seat but that is unlikely you would think as well I mean the thinking goes that you'll be unlikely to boost the Conservatives as much as Labour's potential to actually claw you know claw back some support they have been gaining recently they have you know things have been going better for Labour in Scotland I mean, the big question is whether that translates into enough seats, given the first past the post system in in the UK. In the UK election in Scotland, it will be whether they can translate that into go. There were only one seat now. If they could get it up to ten or something, that might make a bit of a difference to the outcome of the UK election.
0: Really great okay. stuff. Wonderful reporting, Rodney. Thank you so, so much. Rodney Jefferson, Bloomberg Senior Editor, uh, joining us, Nicholas Sturgeon, uh, stepping down. That just, like, scratches the surface of the news flow that we've gotten today. There's lots of uh, other interesting company stories as well. Lufthansa, we're going to talk about that in just a moment. And then Eddie and I are going to sound off on Glencore. Killer, killer quarter, killer year, but it's on coal. What do you do with that? Yeah. When you, what, what do you do if you're a shareholder? We're supposed to be energy transitioning here. We're going to get to that next. This is Bloomberg.
3: This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio.
0: Good evening, you're listening to The Cable, Bloomberg DAB at Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Eddie Vandervault is over in the UK. Alright, let's get you caught up on US markets here. Uh, the S&P is down just four-tenths of 1%. The Nasdaq is now flat. I say just, because when we got these super-hot retail numbers uh, earlier today, you definitely saw a steep decline in equities. You're like, okay, well that makes sense. And then now we're back to neutral. Uh, the bond market, also quite interesting, the sell-off is in the back end, not the front end. So the front is just up by about two basis points, but the 10-year is up by seven basis points. What that means? Mm. Honestly, I'm really not sure. We're going to get to that in a little bit as well. Maybe, you know, we're pricing out cuts maybe for this year, but we still see cuts like in January. Maybe that's part of it. I should also point out a headline here. According to the Journal, Austin Goolsbee is now being considered to serve as a uh, Fed vice chair. This comes as Lyle Brainerd uh, will be going to the White House. Okay, that's a snapshot of the U.S. We will talk more in just a moment. Uh, Charlie Pellet's here with some other headlines. Hi, thank
4: you very much, and here's what's going on. Trade between Ireland and the U.K. continued to expand last year, despite outstanding issues over trading arrangements for Northern Ireland following Brexit. According to trade data from the Central Statistics Office, the value of imports to Ireland from mainland Great Britain rose 55% last year from 2021 exports climbed by 19 percent Flybe group the distressed british carrier is to be wound down after attempts to sell the struggling business failed the regional airline had already ceased operations and canceled all of its flights in january after collapsing into administration a form of insolvency proceedings it's the second failure for Flybe, which previously halted operations in 2020 when the pandemic wiped out demand for air travel lufthansa meanwhile is returning to normal flight operations after widespread software problems today linked to damaged Deutsche Telekom broadband cables grounded hundreds of planes. And Waitrose says it's going to be cutting prices by a record amount beginning today as the upmarket grocer tries to win back customers who've chosen cheaper rivals including Discounters, Aldi and Lidl. Waitrose says the move will cost it £100 million, more than three times the amount at last dedicated to reducing prices. In October of 2020. That is the latest from the news desk. Alex Steele, back to you now here in New
0: York. All right, Charlie, thank you so much. Eddie, what is up with planes? I don't know if you've been following in the US, but like sometimes <laughs> planes almost crash into each other. Sometimes there are yeah. uh, disruptions where, well, I forget what airline it was, but they couldn't abort any of their planes. I mean, what?
3: It just, it, when one thing goes wrong, it all just goes wrong together. It, it kind of reminds me of the, uh, of, the supply chain crisis we had right Mm -hmm. it's it's like when one domino falls the whole thing falls over it just shows you how integrated the world has become
0: it's such a good point um so let's get more on this uh so as charlie was saying lufthansa supposedly returning to normal um there was a damaged deutsche Deutsche telecom broadband cable that just grounded hundreds of planes uh william wilkes who's on the story uh joins us now i just don't understand how something like this can happen in the year 2023
8: that's a very good question, um, Alex. Um, a, kind of a, a bizarre event. Um, so, yeah, last night some engineers cut through a fibre-optic cable and then this morning that grounded all Lufthansa's flights. Basically what happened is the Lufthansa went to its systems this morning and because of this kind of physical severance of this of this, um, of this cable, they they weren't able to. So that meant that uh, someone trying to push one Lufthansa plane in Tokyo and New York could just couldn't, um, you know, get past the gate security just didn't have any information on passengers. Um, and it's yeah, it's astounding. This really shouldn't happen. There should be kind of backup systems in place. Right? But they yeah. Appear to have failed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, they appear to have failed, and um, Lufthansa is looking into it internally about what went on there.
3: So were were any customers actually put at risk? I mean, what happens if I was in a plane? You know. Uh, t- Swirling over Heathrow, ready to land, and Lufthansa plane would would this have would this have affected me in any any way sort of way?
8: No, it didn't affect airborne planes at all. It was all Lufthansa Lufthansa's ground systems that were in, impacted, and they decided not to fly at all for just to be just to be careful on that. So yeah, it, it was kind of things like check-in desks weren't working, uh, secure, um kind of boarding gates weren't working, and and those kind of right. things it didn't have any impact on airborne flights.
0: Thank goodness, uh, I guess. I mean, but these are like, you know, new things now that we need to consider uh, when, we're, uh, when we're flying. Um, okay, did they lose money? Like, does, does the have to pay out people? What happens here?
8: Yeah, it will cost some money. Um, how much, they're, they're still kind of, they'll add that up, and they'll probably give us an update on that when they release earnings in early March. And um, on the cost, it's probably not that much money. I mean, relatively, we're probably talking kind of low tens of millions um, of euros. Um, you know, airlines typically the biggest cost are kind of uh, a fuel, and it's not like Lufthansa was not, you know, was burning fuel mm-hmm. during this, this kind of thing. So they've got the cost of some refunds and some kind of rescheduling and probably some, you know, catering stuff like some food might have spoiled it they were going to use, but it, it won't be. A sh- it's not a huge,
0: huge. amount of money that I've lost. It was just bananas. All right, William. Thanks a lot, William Wilkes, uh, joining us on Lufthansa. And let's get to another topic that is close and near to both mine and Eddie's hearts, and that's Glencore paying out a seven point billion dollars. I mean, unbelievable profit uh, that this company made uh, last year. Yeah, okay, the stock is down by about 1.5% as its adjusted EBITDA missed estimates for this year. But last year was amazing, and it was driven by Mm. coal. I think that this perfectly encapsulates, Eddie, what's the problem with energy companies right now and metal companies right now. You're still stuck in the old way of doing things, but that old way makes you a lot of money, but you need to transition to the new stuff.
3: Yeah, and... A lot of people don't want to do that. And because they are willing to do it, they are reaping the be- the benefits.
0: Right. And, and you have to wonder, do they stop doing it? OK, so basically what happened is you had the war in Ukraine, right? And the energy system got really crunched. And so coal became in high demand. You had record high coal prices, particularly as there was a strong demand pull from China. Um, now, mm-hmm. a lot of the other big traders sort of backed out from coal, but Glencore didn't. And that's why they made so much money. So if I'm sitting on yeah. Glencore's board or I'm in the in the C suite, what's my strategy now? <laughs> no,
3: Alex, I don't think they back down, right? Because I think I think they do they they say, look, the energy transition is going to, to mean that we our energy demand demand actually rises. And with the best way to build this new green world is by initially increasing our coal demand, right? They were bullish on coal well before the, the 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 war in Ukraine so this was not this was not some sort of prescient um exposure that they took on the back of, you know expecting that Russia was going to invade Ukraine that was not it they were saying for a long time that demand for coal is going to remain strong mm-hmm. um and and, and I don't think, so I don't think that changes because exactly because nobody else wants to touch gold, right. they, they see an opportunity there. But
0: but herein lies the problem because at some point in order for these companies to make this transition possible, shareholders are gonna have to reward those companies through higher stock prices for doing that. If they are hmm. if they keep rewarding the companies that aren't doing that, I'm not saying Glencore's not doing anything, but you know what I mean. Um, how where's the incentive that that that's where i truly can't come to grips with
3: right but i think the profits are are, are disconnected from what what shareholders are willing to pay for them and i mm-hmm. think uh I, I think the share price will trade at a discount to peers because they, it, it is less forward-looking but i think the profits will be higher so i think people will take exposure Mm-hmm. to other miners that, you know, to, to your free ports that are, uh, you know, to, to, to companies that, that have coal exposure, I, I mean, uh, um, copper exposure, but at the same time reap benefits those who are willing to take coal exposure.
0: Yeah. it's a really tricky line. And I, as I mentioned, Glencore stock closed down about one and a half percent. All right. Coming up next, we'll talk about GXO logistics. This is Bloomberg.
3: This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio.
0: Good evening. You listen to cable, Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Eddie Vanderbilt is over in the UK. GXO Logistics has its fingers pretty much everywhere and can really tell uh, where the trade is happening and uh, talked about inflation and about, um, and about underlying demand. Now, they had results uh, today. It um, did pretty well. Uh, revenue did beat. Their outlook is super solid for this year, yet the stock is down by about 4.6%. Myself and Danny Berger caught up with the CIO, CIO Mark Manduca, and we talked about the results.
1: But we're incredibly pleased with our performance in the fourth quarter. Natalia's numbers speak testament to it. We had high single-digit organic revenue growth, we had margin expansion, we had strong free cash generation. There was no shortage of things to like. And we're very much looking forward to 2023. This business has 90% revenue visibility and above. So we've got some strong growth coming in 23. We have $2 billion of pipeline and above. And then we gave those 2027 targets, reiterated them today, 8 to 12% organic growth between now and 2027, as well as 17% EBITDA growth annually. It's an exciting time to be us.
6: Love that. Love that as a way to end that answer. Um, Mark, one of the charts that Natalia showed there was inventories getting back to normal. Everyone is waiting for a lot of the bottlenecks just for really the entire world to normalize. Where do you still see the biggest bottleneck? What is still the biggest problem right now?
1: So it's interesting because I, I agree with Natalia's point and uh, we, we've talked we've talked about that chart a lot in recent weeks. It, the second derivative of, of inventories has clearly come down significantly. I think it's still likely that we see absolute inventories remain higher going forwards, because I sense that the scars of the pandemic still are going to loom large for many global blue chip customers. Mm. I think in particular, what you're going to see is nearshoring taking place a lot, people bringing inventory back on shore. But overall, to Natalia's point, Q4 has clearly showed signs of destocking, And that trend as we've moved through reverse logistics season through January and February has also been a theme. So inventories will be destocked. That chart, as you can see, the rate of changes Mm-hmm. Blue line. I think what we're going to see is inventories coming down from here, but remain structurally higher.
0: That, okay, so not no longer the just-in-time. Like we still have to adjust for for everything. Um, we did get the retail sales that were really strong today, and I just and I appreciate that you're sort of at the beginning of the point of the consumer. Right? Is the strong U.S. consumer that we're seeing meld with what you guys see logistically on the ground?
1: Yeah. So it's interesting on the consumer, Alex. There's two there's two things. Firstly the UK and the European consumer aren't getting any worse as far as we can see, which I think is interesting. But the second derivative of consumer spending, you mentioned it when you talked about retail sales at the start, that appears, if anything, to be improving and and logical reasons, right? Interest rates aren't going up as sharply, oil prices aren't ratcheting like they were this time last year, and inventories are still high compared with history in absolute terms, as Natalia said. Uh, We're seeing, on the more negative side, we're seeing trading down in in sectors like the grocery market, particularly Mm in the UK. We've seen um, the consumers start to feel a pinch a little on the consumer tech side. That's been a bit of a challenge. And I think that the global fast fashion market's probably been a bit mixed. We've seen it over January with some of the the retail data. But luxury meanwhile has remained strong. So if you compare the US to the UK right now, the consumer is definitely being more mindful across both markets. The US is still better, but I think that the consumer overall is still looking for promotions and deals and that was a theme through Black Hmm. Friday and Christmas.
6: Mark, one thing I will never understand, even having lived here for five years, is uh, UK investors are just so obsessed with grocery stores, and I think that's made me <laughs> obsessed too. Um, Waitrose announced that they are going to be cutting some prices to try to be more competitive. Um, as you mentioned, this is, this is obviously a, a space that, that you're involved in. What do you make of that? Is this going to be the start of, of a price-cutting trend we're going to see throughout the UK?
1: I think it's an interesting point because it relates to this sort of broader point of inflation. Um, we are seeing signs of a deflationary environment emerge, I think, as we go through later this year. It's been a theme amongst many of the guests that you've been talking about. And you've seen co- companies across the space try and react to that deflationary environment. I've seen it best uh, in the labor market. Wall Street keeps getting very upset about what the decimal point is on these inflation numbers. But, but for me, on the ground in the real world, mm-hmm. I'm seeing inflation since about November time come down. And it's actually inflation is running probably so at low music single digits right now. Feds- in- Here's
0: there, Mark Manduka talk about inflation coming down. The CIO uh, of GXO Logistics. Um, OK, coming up, we're going to talk about those retail numbers coming in really strong and what it winds up meaning for the Fed. This is Bloomberg.
5: This is The Cable with Guy Johnson
3: and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio.
0: Good evening and listen to Cable, Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Eddie Vandervault is over in the U.K. A couple headlines out of the ECB. Christine Lagarde is speaking in European Parliament. Uh, no surprise, she basically again says that she intends to raise rates with the ECB by 50 basis points in March, then re- will reevaluate the rate path after that March hike. dollar literally does nothing. Uh, still around the lows of the session, around 1.06. How, how much more hawkish can they be and like not actually move the market is the question. Okay, so let's take a look at the data from the U.S. We talked about it all day, and that is the retail sales blowing past expectations despite the fact that I had a budget. Eddie laughed, but it's true. I stuck to it. Uh, let me tell you, <laughs> I did not expect to see retail sales coming in 3% on a month-on-month basis in January. Uh, Mike McKee joins us here in the studio. Uh, Mike, were you surprised by this number?
9: Uh, a little bit. I mean, the, the outlook was for a uh, big rebound. Uh, there seems to be something seasonal going on with the fact that people are spending less in November and December uh, and more in October as the holiday shopping season gets underway. Uh, and then they came back. <laughs> now, a certain amount of this was uh, because of car sales. And that was an unusual rebound as well. Uh, People didn't really see uh, car sales picking up as much as they did in January. And then uh, gasoline prices went up. So that contributed some as well. But beyond that, every category saw growth. So uh, Mm. it it was a little bit
3: of a surprise that it was as strong as it was. Right. This this is not following the script that the markets have laid out for us, right? The by now the consumers should have been suffering a little bit. And we're seeing some indications of uh, you know, mortgage applications maybe coming down and so on. But but the retail sales number tell us that tells us that people are still out there spending money. And this just builds that case that the Fed's gonna have to hike, hike and hike more, right? Well, the Fed's already made the case that it's going to have
9: to hike more. True. They've promised <laughs> right. they've promised at least 50 basis points more. Uh now do they go beyond that? We'll wait and see because they're going to want to wait and see more data before they have to make a decision. But the the you know the the betting for the next meeting is at least 25, maybe if we get another report like this they'd go 50. But um, the question is, what do they do towards the end of the year? Now, their view, and I think I said this yesterday, is that they wait and go meeting by meeting to decide what they're going to do going forward because this is such an unusual economy and it is not developing uh, the way people thought it was. I mean, who who would have thought that Alex Steele would pull back on spending?
0: I know. Uh,
9: so, uh, <laughs> believe
0: so, me, not my husband.
9: <laughs> so, you know, if the markets were betting on Alex, <laughs> yep. they'd be up. <laughs>
0: so, okay, so here's my question What, what sense do we make of the mar- market action? So, on the one hand, it looks like we're pricing out hikes for this year. Oh, sorry, yeah, uh, cuts for this year. So, yay. The Fed is going to be happy to see that. But then on the other hand, you wind up having equities holding up. The bond market is a little confusing. The front end isn't really doing anything despite the fact that this feels like a, a go harder for longer uh data point. What did you make of that?
9: Well, it it seems like everybody's scratching their heads as to what's going on alone. here. Uh it's you know, there seem to be some uh technicals at work in some of the markets and then it's a kind of a question of what you think is going to happen. Is it going to be uh, recession or is it going to be a immaculate deflation, as people say, with inflation coming down and the economy not crashing? And then how do you play that is another question uh, as well. Um, and now I've just exhausted everything I know about uh, what markets might be doing. <laughs> it's fair. <laughs> I yeah.
0: mean, there, there's a
9: lot of talk about how people are using options these days, and that's kind of screwing with, with where yeah, the Yeah, you can get a clean go. read. Mm-hmm. And you could understand that because there's so many surprises coming that if you think that there's a possible surprise out there, do a one-day option and mm-hmm. you know, see what happens. That's yeah, not and an it, investment it, it advice, does- by
3: the way. Right, and look, the bond market does seem to be paying attention. We've gone from uh, terminal rate expectations in the US from, you know, two weeks ago, the market was looking at something like 4.8%. Now we're looking at something like 5.25%. So that's a 50 basis point uh, increase in where the, the market sees the terminal rate for the Fed. The stock market seems to be doing something completely different, Right are we are we getting to a world where the market seems to just be thinking look we're going to have to live with inflation stocks could be some sort of an inflation hedge and another 50 basis points isn't going to matter i think it's
9: it's kind of too early to say um I suspect that we, uh, at this point, the idea that they've priced in uh, another 25 basis points, we're going up to 5.5% of the markets now for the Fed terminal rate, is something that uh, could go either way. I mean, we could see them, by the time the Fed next meets, we could see it higher than that, or we could see the markets backing off, depending on how the data comes in. Um, it's, uh, And we've said this many times, it's the market's job to overreact to the data. And are they overreacting? We don't know. Um, and that's why um, the Fed looks at it and goes, we're not going to do that. We're not going to constantly change what we think we're going to have to do. We're going to just try to uh, make a decision when we have to, because this is so such a, a weird period of time. But yeah, if you think the economy is going to be stronger, then... Uh, you'd want to go into equities because, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, yeah. You, know, you get the, the reflation trade, uh, although that w- w- has its own we problems. It, we, yeah. We shouldn't put it that way.
0: But the idea is that it's, and this is Torsten and has been talking about this over at Apollo, the no landing thing, we're kind of at the reacceleration. Um, We got like 45 seconds left. So we got through CPI. We got through retail sales. Don't tell me to wait till jobs Friday. What's next?
9: PPI tomorrow. Is
0: that going Here to actually go. matter?
9: Um, It is forecast to show continued weakness, and commodity prices have been going down. So if we get that, it doesn't matter nearly as much as the CPI or PCE, Mm -hmm. but it could influence what people are thinking. And, of course, jobless claims have been so low for so long that if we got a surprise there— then that could affect the markets as well.
0: Good point on that. Um, Mike, thank you very much. I feel you'll be back tomorrow. Uh, Mike McKee, the yeah. <laughs> Morgan National Economics and Policy Correspondent. Eddie, th- th- this is done for you, right? Like you- you've been with me for three days, it has been a wonderful three days, but this is it for you.
3: Well, you know, guys, coming back and uh, you've got you've got other company next tomorrow, so you know, don't be sad. But I did have fun. Thank you very much for having me, Alex.
0: No, thank you. I really appreciate you spending time with us. Thank you very much. Yeah, that's listening to the cable, Bloomberg D A B digital radio. I will see you guys tomorrow. This is Bloomberg.